All right. Good morning. Good to see everyone. I ask you, if you will, to turn in Acts to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Acts chapter 2, we're going to continue in our series. As you saw, Lord, build your church. We're going to be looking this morning at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just simply say how important it is for us to be together this morning and this evening. Remember, we gather together uh, on occasionally about once every quarter on a Sunday night to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So we come together, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the purpose of that is while we have several services on Sunday morning, we want that opportunity for our people to all be together that Sunday evening to gather around the table. So I would encourage you to come back this evening at 5 o'clock. Is that the right time? 5 o'clock, good. Encourage you to come back this evening at 5 o'clock. Committed to reading the passage, we have a rather long passage this morning, and I'm going to stick with it. There's nothing more important to the sermon than God's Word. Amen? And so, we're going to read this passage together, starting in verse 14 and going through verse 41. Starting in verse 14 of Acts 2 and going through verse 41. The events of Pentecost, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire coming down and dividing amongst the others, those events have now drawn a crowd, the text tells us. As this happened in the upper room, it says, at this sound, the multitude came together. A rather large crowd, as we'll find out, as some 3,000 were added that day. And so as the crowd gathers, they're asking a ton of questions. What is going on? And it's that that prompts Peter to stand up and speak. And so here we find that happening in verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on the male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord sat, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage, for this word. God, is so rich with the truth of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. So, Father, this morning, may that be what comes from this hour together, that we have a great and glorious Savior who has conquered sin and death on our behalf. May that be what's proclaimed from this pulpit and what reigns in each and every heart in this room. All for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, the events of the day had created a scene. It tells us, starting in chapter 2 here, that they were in the upper room. A small group had gathered, and the Spirit comes in. And as the Spirit comes in, people start hearing the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They come to see what's going on and what's happening, and they begin to ask questions. In fact, our passage tells us in several places that those who came to see it were bewildered, or as it says, they were amazed and perplexed. They had uh, astonished, the text tells us. They were asking these questions then. Are these not all Galileans? And, 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 and if that's the case, then how is it that they're speaking in our language? How is it that they're able to, we're able to understand them? Aren't they all Galileans? Or, uh, and then some are saying, what does this mean then? What is going on? What is, this, what is happening today? So as they're seeking the answer to this question, you had others, as it tells us, who started to give their own answers. Well, obviously, we know what's going on. They're all drunk. That's what's happening. Obviously, this makes sense. How do you have these Galileans speaking like this, and they're, they're up here doing all this stuff, and, and so obviously, they're all drunk. They're starting to give their own answers. So however or whatever was happening up to this point, like all of them speaking in, in languages they did not know, in different languages and all these other things, Peter wants to address the situation. Peter, with the eleven, it says, so he's standing there with the other apostles, and these believers had come. He wants them to understand what's happening. So he lifts up his voice, and he addresses them, it says. He stands up, he lifts up his voice, and he addresses them. And here, in Acts chapter 2, with this sermon, 
Peter, armed with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, establishes the church this first day. This first moment, the coming of the Spirit, what happens, the first thing is Peter stands up and preaches. And so Peter, on this first day, establishes the church by preaching to the people. By preaching to the people. So Peter, in this sense then, he not only preaches on this first day, he also establishes the primary way the Lord will and has built his church from the first day until now. The primary way the Lord will and has built his church from day one here in Acts chapter two until today is through the preaching of God's word. So because Peter preached then, we preach. Because Peter preaches in Acts chapter two, we preach. We gather together and it's still primary of what we do. And so today I want to just kind of walk through maybe an idea as we consider how The Lord establishes his church, and if I could simply put a title on this sermon, it would be the Lord establishes his church through the preaching of his word, through the preaching of his word. And so here we want to see first, we preach. We preach. This is what we do. Peter, as I said, is is the one who stands up to address the crowd. And uh, 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 the crowd had formed. They come in. They want to know what's happening. They're perplexed. They're amazed. They're bewildered. We get all those words. And so Peter feels this need to address And we saw Peter kind of take the lead in the first chapter, right? Whenever they needed to replace Judas, Peter's the one who steps up, takes the lead and how how to do this. So we saw him take the lead in the first chapter. And again, Peter takes the lead here in chapter 2, which brings up a good question for us, a good question about Peter himself. You see, all four Gospels tell us about Peter's denial. And that's kind of rare. I mean, the four Gospels tell us about about, uh, the death of Christ, but not all four Gospels tell us about the nativity, the birth of Jesus. You have have Matthew and Luke that focus on that. I mean, all of us tell us he was born, but not how it happened and what went down. And so not all the Gospels tell us every single thing about Christ and what happens in his life or his disciples. But all four Gospels focus on Peter's denial of Jesus. And if you remember... Uh, Jesus told Peter he would do this whenever the night that Jesus would be betrayed, that Peter would deny him three times. The rooster would crow and Peter would recognize this. Peter denied it. No way. Not going to happen. In fact, Peter overreacts to this in some way that when they come to arrest Jesus, he pulls out the knife and cuts off the dude's ear. And Jesus tells him, don't do that. You know, you'll die like that if you do it yourself. And so Peter's trying to prove his faithfulness even overreacts to prove it. And so there they arrest Jesus and they take him away. And surely all four gospels tell us how the first little slave girl came up to him. Really, and what I mean by uh, why I'm emphasizing is a slave girl because the text tells us that because it's really an insignificant person. It's, it's not somebody who could have thrown Peter in jail. It's not somebody who could, have, who could have had him arrested. Nobody would have even taken the slave girl's testimony if she would says it. And she came up to him and says, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter says, no, I wasn't. And in fact, it tells us in Matthew's gospel that that first time he denied him before everybody that was standing around. And then the second time someone comes up and says, yeah, you were. You were with that guy. This time, Peter comes up and it says he denied him with an oath. In other words, he's saying, I promise you, I did not do it on my mother's life. I don't know if that's how he does it. You probably shouldn't do that either. But 
denies it with an oath. And then finally, when they does it the second time, he even continues, he invokes a curse on himself. I will be damned to hell if I was with him. And then he curses everyone, it tells us. Peter even goes, I mean, just streams, just denying him to doing an oath, to cursing himself and cursing out everybody else, denying Jesus. So how do you get from that Peter to just about eight weeks later, this Peter? That brings up an incredible question. How do you get there? And obviously, I believe the change in Peter that we find in the text is the most or one of the most clear proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. How did Peter go from denying him, bringing a curse upon himself, and getting out to standing up before the crowd saying, let me tell you why this is happening? How did we get there from that night? We got there because Peter came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And once Peter saw the resurrected Jesus, he knew that's what he's hitching his wagon to, right? He knew no longer do I deny him. This is the one that I must hold fast to. I don't care what anybody else may do or say. This is the one. So he was not only saw the resurrected Jesus, he was restored by him. As, as Jesus spent time one-on-one -on -one with Peter, Paul tells us, to restore him. And we find that in John's gospel. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. He does it three times. And because of that, Peter now becomes the one when the Spirit of God comes upon him with boldness and with freedom. He stands up to preach. And the book of Acts asserts really the place of preaching rather clearly. Peter has eight sermons in the book of Acts. He addresses the crowd eight times as sermons. There's 15 total sermons in these chapters. So preaching becomes the, the very center of this establishment. And so Peter has these eight. Paul has five. Uh, uh, Stephen and James each have one apiece. Peter stands up and he addresses this crowd. He takes center stage with the word of God. And the key here becomes that it will be preaching. Preaching will become the, the primary way that the Lord will use his church. That's what Acts is showing us, how the Lord will build it. Preaching will become this primary way. It's especially the method of the, of the apostles. Chapter 6 speaks to this as well. When, a, when a, a, a problem rose, it says, in those days, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, they weren't getting enough food. Could you imagine not giving the old ladies enough food? Y'all know what I'm saying? Complaints happen. I want more. And they weren't doing it. And the apostles said, we have to address this. We have to deal with this. These are the, the, the um, ones that need it the most amongst us, the widows who need care, the widows who, and we're not caring for them. And so the apostles see this, and listen to what the apostles say. And the 12, that's them, summoned the full number of the disciples and says, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word. You see, in the daily distribution of these things, it was taking time from them to prepare and to preach the word. The apostles said, this is our primary task. Not to say that God doesn't use many other methods to save sinners. He does. He uses personal evangelism. He uses relational witnessing. He uses us sharing the gospel any many ways he can. But the primary task the primary way that God builds his church is through the preaching of his word. The preaching of his word. That's why I say 
That's why I say today that this is my main responsibility as pastor here. This moment, this time, this gathering on Sunday morning, my main responsibility for our church is to stand in the pulpit and proclaim the word of God with freedom and with boldness, just as Paul did, just as Peter did. That's the main thing I do. This is my biggest responsibility. This is what I must care for because it's the pulpit, it's the preaching of the word that establishes and builds up the church. In fact, we do this in our own architecture, right? If you look back in church history, and some of you may have been from different traditions or in different places, and, and you'll notice when you walk into a church building, you'll see that, that the center of the, the building is not the pulpit. The pulpit may be to the side, if you will, and some of you may have seen this. The pulpit's on the side. What's at center of the building is usually the table, the Lord's Supper. That's the centerpiece of worship, in other words. The architecture itself speaks to what's, what's the center of what we do. And so whenever the Reformation comes and happens some 500 years ago, and then out of that, Baptists start coming along, the pulpit was moved from the side to the middle. Why is this? Because we come in with the pulpit being the focus, the preaching of the word being even the focus. Our architecture itself speaks to our understanding of the preached word of God. It speaks to it. It's the focus. It's the centerpiece of it all. And again, it's my main responsibility there was a book that was written a few years ago called The Power of the Five-Minute Sermon. Some of y'all think, oh, man, that sounds great. <laughs> sounds awesome. We should give that out to our new members. The Power of the Five-Minute Sermon. And, and, and they go through the book of Acts because there's 15 sermons, and they're like, you can read all of these in five minutes, each one of them. First of all, they neglect to read verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to <laughs> exhort them, saying... They neglect that one because obviously this is what's here is a summary of the preached word. But what the issue is, is that people believe oftentimes that preaching is become outmoded. Our people are different nowadays. It's a new time, new technology, new things, other stuff, and it becomes irrelevant. And it becomes irrelevant to the church. So what we do is irrelevant. And here's what I'm saying. I want us to not be so concerned about the length of the sermons, which becomes the joke of everything, right? And it is my joke too. I don't want to preach a long time. I got to do it three times. I don't want us to be so concerned about how long it is. What I want us to be concerned about is what is it proclaiming? My goal is not to be boring by all strange imaginations. Somebody asked me today about my jokes that I were going to use this morning. They just come natural to me. My goal is not to be boring in any way, shape, or form, but what my goal is is to stand here and proclaim the word of God in some way because this, this is the primary way that God builds you and he builds me up. And this is the primary way he builds up the church. I'm more concerned about the content. As it's been said before, a mist in the pulpit creates a fog in the pew. And our desire is not to be misty up here, but to be radically clear about who God is and what he has done. And that's why, like Peter, we preach. And when we preach, also like Peter, we preach the Bible. So if you got number two, we preach, we preach the Bible. To understand what's happening, Peter turns directly to the Word of God. Let me tell y'all what's happening. First of all, they're not drunk. It's only like 9 a.m., okay? Okay? Still early in the morning. 
That's not it. Let me tell you what it is. And he goes directly to the prophet Joel. And he says, this is, what, this is what it is. This is what was promised before. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. That's what he's saying. What Joel said is exactly what's happening today. This is not catching us by surprise. Peter's using the Holy Spirit now, understanding the word, bringing these two things together. He's not looking here to give an opinion of what's happening that day. He says, no, I don't have to give you my opinion. God has already spoke about what this is. The preaching here for Peter is not opinion-filled rhetoric that he would give for his own behalf. This is the word of God that he wants to proclaim. And the Holy Spirit here, according to Joel, as we read through this, I think the very, without having time to go through every piece of this with Joel, the very clear nature is that the Spirit has come. And when the Spirit comes, it is indiscriminatory about who it comes upon. All who believe it has got male or female in a society where they separated out different people and different, different genders and other things who have different responsibilities and able to accomplish different things. He's saying, no, that's not the way this works. When the Spirit of God comes, male and female have it. Slave and free have it. The Spirit of God is not, is not going to discriminate against anyone. It comes upon all who believe. All who believe that come. That's who this is. So the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes, signs happen, testifying to the Word of God, so that, and I think the very heart of Peter's point here of pulling out Joel comes in verse 21, so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The moment has come now. You may have thought this message of this coming Christ was just for the Jews, but now the moment has come that everyone who calls on his name shall be saved. Now the moment has happened where times have changed, the church has begun, and all who believe and confess Christ will be saved. And what changed that moment? Paul would put it later saying, how, how, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and how will they, how will they be saved but by the preacher, right? What has changed in this moment? What's changed in this moment is the fact that the Spirit has come. Paul, Peter uses the Bible as the foundation for all of Christian worship and preaching. We have a standard before us. We don't look to other things or other things or other places. We don't have some frantic lust for what is innovative. We have something that is true and has been true since God gave it to us. And so that becomes the foundation for all of worship and preaching. As Paul exhorts Timothy later, preach the word. And this makes sense because what we find in Scripture is that the Spirit uses the word to apply it to the hearts and lives of his people. It's the Word and the Spirit that go together. So as the Spirit comes on Pentecost, it makes perfect sense that Peter, full of the Spirit, proclaims the Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's what God uses, the Word and the Spirit coming together to be proclaimed. But notice also here, in Ephesians chapter 5, in a very unique place, I think, giving a command to husbands, in Ephesians 5, 25, Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And now he's going to talk about how Christ has loved the church. How Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
Why is it that Christ came? Why is it that he does what he's, uh, he's doing? So that he may sanctify his church, his people. He may wash them with the water of the word so he will present them without wrinkle or spot or blemish. Ultimately, he's saying, what I do is I preach and I'm preaching so that you may be cleansed through the word. He's not calling us. He's not calling us simply to have this simple rag bath, if you will. He's calling us to be washed and cleansed by the proclamation of the word. That's how Christ has ordained this thing. So God's word becomes what we used to cleanse us and wash us by the power of the spirit so that we might be presented without wrinkle or spot. The Lord will purify his people through the word. And that's why also we're committed here to what we call expositional preaching. Expositional preaching, or what we say is verse by verse, where we look to the Word and we pull out from the Word by the uh, Spirit working in us, we pull out from the Word what it would have us to know. We don't read into it what we desire, we pull out from it what it would have us to know and to be. We get it out of it, not reading into it. And when we dive into the Word, what do we find? When we dive into this, being using this to wash us with the water of his word, what do we find when we dive into it? We preach, right? We preach the Bible. And because we preach the Bible, we preach Jesus. Because we preach the Bible, we preach Jesus. The Bible is, as you know, one book. I've said this many times. Some of you have been studying this idea. The Bible is one book with one author and one subject. One book, one author, one subject. And that subject is that salvation can only be found through God's Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible is not a book about how we find God. The Bible is a book about how God has saved us, how God has found us. We oftentimes read it from that man-centered, how are we going to find God idea. But really, when you read it, God is the main character and actor. Jesus is the main subject. And the story is how he has come to save us, not how we have found salvation in him. How he has come down for us. And Peter, from the prophet, prophet Joel, is going to make a beeline to Jesus. He, he, he goes here and he... he reads Joel and he says, this is what happened. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. He goes directly to Christ. He reads Joel. He says, here's what's happening. This is what's happening. The Spirit has come. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Look to Jesus. He goes directly to Christ Jesus in his preaching. He goes from the passage in the Old Testament to Christ. He tells us simple things here about Christ that are so profound. First of all, he tells us what he has done. This Jesus who did signs and wonders in your midst, this one was crucified for you. That's what he says. This is what he's done. He's come to bring you salvation. He's come to save you, redeem you, and he died the death you should have lived. That's what Christ Jesus has done. 
Here, Peter makes a direct line to Christ about what he has done for us. Surely we need to hear this. He even uses Psalm 16 to say, as he he goes back to the word, preaching the word, he uses Psalm 16 to tell us how David has put this, how Jesus is the one who died and rose again because Psalm 16 tells us that the Messiah of God will not see corruption or death. And David's still in the tomb, right? But not Jesus, he's alive. That's what he has done. You see, he's telling a group of people that were in Jerusalem maybe a few weeks before. He said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised again. What Jesus has come to do, God has accepted. The most important thing that you can know is that God has raised him up. What Jesus has come to do, God has approved it. God has brought him back to life. And so you crucified him. You called for Barabbas. You screamed out, crucify him. You did all of those things, but God has made him alive. You made a ruling, but God has overruled your ruling. And so here, Christ Jesus is the one who has done this for us. But he not only says that, he continues here after that to talk about who he is. This Jesus who has died for you is the one who rose again, and now he is the one who rules and reigns. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He goes through and he says, this one, David's still in the grave, but we have a promise. The promise was that one of David's offspring will sit on the throne forever. That's Jesus. He's the one who rules and reigns over us. Not only he died for us, doing the wonders and signs and rose again, but now he reigns for us. He reigns for us. He's the one who's on the throne that we all have to answer to. To summarize ultimately the apostles' teaching, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's speaking to the Corinthians, a very accomplished people at the time, a modern people. They had grown, and Paul would later say, I know crucifixion doesn't sound good to you. It's too brutal. It's too much. But Paul looks at him and says, I know nothing else to give you. This is it. Jesus and him crucified. That's Paul's summation of his preaching. And what I would argue is that should be the summation of our preaching. To know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This becomes the very subject of it all. Look at what Peter says down in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He reigns, he's Lord, and he's Christ, he's Savior. This is who he is, and this is what he's done. This is the one you must look to. This Jesus whom you crucified. The Christian message is about Jesus. As one has said, a sermon without Christ as its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in its conception and a crime in its execution. In my Bible, I'll tell you all this, in my Bible, I have two quotes at the beginning of my Bible here, right on the front page. I wrote in it. It's not in the main section because it's not, it's not inspired. But I did right here. And I read both of these before I get up to preach. Before I come over, I read these and pray through them. Here's what it says. The motto of all the servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Or leave Christ out? Oh, my brother, better leave the pulpit out altogether. 
If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last, certainly the last one that anyone ought to hear from him. Both of these mean something to me. Why is it? Because ultimately the only thing we have to offer, a bunch of beggars who found bread, and that bread is what we bring, right? And the only thing we have to offer is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I can get up and I can do the stand-up comedy routines. I can do all the other stuff. I can do all the, the pep talks, the moral lessons, if you will, the personal pep talks. I can encourage you with that. Really, I can't. I'm not good at any of that. I could do all of those things, but those things are foolishness to this world. Anybody can do that. And what you find are those things cannot give what you're looking for because what you are looking for is to have your sins forgiven and find hope in the midst of darkness and light at the end of this wicked world. That's what you're looking for. Whether you realize it or not, you want something to hold on to that is certain and sure. And what Peter says is Christ is it. It's it. We got nothing else to bring. We got nothing else to offer. Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up. And I'm here to proclaim the only hope you have for your sins to be forgiven. If the cornerstone of our church is Jesus Christ, if the head of this body is Jesus Christ, if the bridegroom who has come to redeem his people is Jesus Christ, then by all means, what we do when we stand here is proclaim our cornerstone, our head, our bridegroom as the only hope we have. Then with certainty, if those are true, then we build our church upon this proclamation, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else comes to that at all. We preach the we preach. We preach the Bible. Because we preach the Bible, we preach Jesus. And because we preach Jesus, we preach with urgency. Look at what happens when Peter says, Hey, know this for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they had heard this, when they heard this, it cut them to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? The proclamation of Jesus brings us to a question of what is it for us then? As we preach Jesus, it's going to always lead to that question. What does this mean? If I don't have some meaning behind it, then it's foolishness for us to get up here. What does this mean for each one of us? Each one of us? It means this for Peter. Repent and believe. That's what it means. That's what it means to us. Repent and believe. The prophet Joel had said it, and when Peter brings this up, he says, In the last days it shall be. And so he's saying these last days have come. What does that mean for us? But without getting into all the other signs that y'all think you got to look at and follow through and read all the books about and all this other stuff, what it means when he says the last days, it means there's nothing else that needs to happen for Christ to return. We're in this final. He has, he has been born, he lived, he suffered, he died, he rose again, he's ascended, he's on the throne, he said he's coming back, that's it. There's nothing else we're looking for other than the return of Christ. So we proclaim in light of the fact that he's coming at any moment, at any time, at any place. There's no other events to happen. So how do you prepare for something that can happen at any moment, at any time, and at any place? We cannot lose sight of the fact that the Lord will return for his people. 
And he will return at a moment that we don't know, at a time we're not expecting. He will come. How do you get ready for that? You get ready for it right now. Peter's reply, repent. Peter's given an urgency statement. Repent right now, he's saying. Do it right now. Don't wait another second. We don't know when he might return. We don't know when the time may be up. Repent. And why is he saying repent? Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. This Jesus who was crucified, right? Whom you crucified. It's your sins that sent him there. Therefore, it's your sins that will send you to hell if it's not been paid for by this Christ. And so now is the time. Repent and believe. Deal with your sin. Run with urgency to the only one that can save you from it. Be baptized in the name of Jesus, he says. Trust in him. The end of Joel, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. At the end of Peter's sermon summary here, it says, as he's reading this, he says, uh, or speaking, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children, for you, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone to whom the Lord God calls to himself. These two things are the same. God is calling us to himself. So repent and believe and call on him. The urgency is there. You cannot wait another moment. It's not as if your life is even guaranteed. It's not as if even the next heartbeat is a promise to you or the next breath. It's not as if any of those things are true. We just take all of that for granted. And what Peter is saying is you can't take any of that for granted. The only thing you can do is trust in the one who can hold you in a life that is completely uncertain for you. What's certain is your sins will send you to an eternal hell. And what's certain is Christ Jesus come to forgive you of those sins. That's what's certain. So hold on to what's certain in a world of uncertainty, he's saying. Hold on to Christ. Save yourselves from this crooked and perverse generation. Save yourselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we have in Christ Jesus. And we thank you even as we gather in this place today that we have a message to proclaim. So God, even now, work on hearts and lives through the power of your spirit in this place. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you've done. May Christ Jesus be exalted. For in him we pray. Amen. Even as we sing one of my favorite hymns, Jesus paid it all. That is right, ain't it, Scott? Amen. Even as we sing this. We'll have some ministers in the back ready to receive you. If this morning you say with urgency, I need to trust in Christ, the one that is certain. No matter what, hear the words of Peter, repent and believe. And may that be the case for every one of us. Let's stand together.